Hey everyone and welcome back to the V-Word. Okay. Vagina, vagina. Sorry, I wasn't ready. (laughs) Vagina, vagina, vagina. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that we have tons of requests to talk about. I'm so glad we're finally talking about this. It's menopause. If you're not quite sure what that means, a little bit uncomfortable or very curious, you're in good company. We're going to give you some clear definitions, talk about the latest research, and end with talking a little bit about how we can culturally reframe the menopause transition. But first, the news. We're going to start a slightly different style, where as our resident journalist, Jen's going to talk about the political news, then I, as our resident scientist, am going to talk a little bit about the scientific news. And we hope that this highlights our work as OBGYNs that's always trying to bridge these both both of these arenas. Okay, politics. I want to talk about this really cool campaign that Planned Parenthood is doing right now called Bands Off My Body, hashtag Bands Off My Body, and you can see it. It's a really cool video, actually, at at istandwithpp.org, and I think the thing that's really cool about it is that this, it's this very simple unifying message about um, we as a community of women, or um, just anyone, really, uh, sending out this message that we will not stand for these abortion bans. And it's a bunch of female identifying people who are naked. I love it. All different skin colors, all different cultures, backgrounds, um, basically just like showing off all their curves and how bodies can look so different. But no matter what your body looks like, bans off my body. Like this is ridiculous. It's so a, It's a very clever hashtag, yeah. actually. I stand with pp.org. Go check out the video and spread it. Share it. Awesome. What's your news? So my news is... Uh, article that was published in the most recent journal of uh, most recent version of the green journal uh, the american college of obstetrics and gynecologists journal called a clinical reference guide on sexual devices for obstetrician gynecologists and i am just so impressed with this article which goes through basically all the research that is out there on the use of sexual devices including vibrators dildos and other products designed to aid in sexual activity in this article Ruben et al. talk about how more than half of women in the United States have used a vibrator and nearly one third have used a dildo and that this... Okay, it's way more than that. It's way more than that, right? (laughs) That's on surveys. And actually that women who have sex with women have an even higher use with 75% um, reporting some sort of vibrator use, which again, like I feel like these numbers are like goals, Um, but that there is actually very little knowledge amongst OBGYNs about what these, what these sexual devices could be used for and how to help people troubleshoot things, even like cleaning them appropriately, um, what safety precautions that can be used. So I wanted to pull like a few big takeaways from it to leave you with all of you with. These are things that maybe people already know, but surprise, surprise, like doctors have taken forever to learn. Yes. So one thing is know what material your sex toy is made out of. That's really important, especially when you think about how to clean it and what lubricant to use with it. So the best type of material to use is a non-porous material, like a medical grade silicone, um, basically there are a few other non-porous materials. These tend to be a little bit more expensive, um, but don't pick up as much bacteria and other things like that. However, silicone sex toys cannot be used with silicone lube. So that's really important to think about because it degrades it. Another thing in terms of safety, particularly in term in devices that are used for anal play, they should really have a guard so that it doesn't go all the way in, basically. So shout out to our anal sex episode with Dr. Leah Milheiser because she really gets into this. Like, don't get things lost in your butt. That is the perfect tie-in. Sex toys, menopause. Ready? Okay, back to menopause. 
Menopause is what we call the time when women stop menstruating or having periods. It's one of the major time posts in a woman's reproductive life. Let's talk about these reproductive time points briefly so that we're all on the same page about what menopause is on the continuum of the many different reproductive time posts. Um, reproductive time points are all characterized by changes in hormone levels that manifest in different body changes. And these time points are often accompanied by other really big events in your life. Okay, so let's start with you're born. Yay, Yay. that's the first time point. <laughs> babies with ovaries and babies without ovaries are really not all that different until puberty happens. So let's call puberty reproductive time point number one. Like the most embarrassing. Yeah, <laughs> But puberty is the time when people with ovaries have their ovaries kind of turn on and start producing estrogen and progesterone, making those more dominant hormones in the body. The body changes that, that happen as a result of these new high hormone levels include hair growth, breast growth, periods, etc. Acne. Oh yeah, acne. We say you've entered puberty when you start to show these external signs of hormonal changes. And the first menstrual period is one of the last events of puberty. But we know these hormonal fluctuations of puberty persist much longer, much longer like, hello, high school. But stay with us because understanding puberty is actually really important to understanding menopause. But we're, that's about the end of puberty for this episode. I could go on talking about puberty forever. I, know, I think but, it's hilarious. But menopause... Focus. Okay, great, great. Moving on to reproductive time point number two. Some people decide to and are able to reproduce. This involves lots of hormone and body changes, including growing another human being and having huge surges of the hormone progesterone. And we could really say that reproductive time point number three is the postpartum, a time we don't talk about enough, but is characterized by another huge hormone change and body changes. We did a whole episode on the postpartum and are definitely going to talk about that more. Um, so check out that episode if you're interested in focusing on just that. Reproductive time point number four, menopause. In some ways, menopause is like a reverse of puberty. The ovaries stop producing as much estrogen and progesterone and start to kind of turn off, allowing other hormones to be more dominant. Body changes that happen as a result of these hormones turning off include the stopping of menses or periods. I think traditionally menopause has been uh, historically stigmatized, and that's because for a long time our society has really seen the main purpose of women as that of vessels, right? We're around to birth babies. Um, and if you can't do that or you lose your ability to do that, you sort of become quote unquote useless to society, at least historically, right? And so because of this, menopause transition is not really discussed or honored as much as it should be in our opinion, right? We all celebrate puberty and coming into quote unquote womanhood and we celebrate pregnancy, pregnancy yeah, babies, mm -hmm. all of that, but nobody celebrates menopause. And honestly, I don't know why, because it's truly, you know, a time point worth celebrating. And it's also not appreciated for the freedom to like the no longer pressure of birthing babies yeah. that it marks. Okay, that sets the scene a little bit. So the menopause transition, medically, is defined as having 12 months of no menstrual period. So once a woman has had 12 months without a period, we note her final menstrual period in her medical chart and say she has entered the menopause transition. This is incredibly confusing to many women and their doctors because you can only really diagnose it 12 months after it happens. Right, like nothing else you're you know, in medicine are we like, well, you may have this diagnosis, but we just have to like wait a year to mm -hmm. see if you really mm -hmm. do. <laughs> totally. Um, plus, similar to puberty, it's not just about the period ending, although that's technically what defines it. 
The years leading up to the final menstrual period and the years after the final menstrual period have huge hormonal fluctuations, which can manifest in a lot of different experiences. You may have heard that whole time before it um, referred to as the perimenopause. I think it's worth mentioning again that menopause, like all these reproductive time points, are also associated with big changes in one's role in one's family and society yeah, at large, definitely. which can also cause some of the psychological and physical changes. And it's sometimes hard to like unpack those things. Mm-hmm. I think often people come to see us and they're like want to blame menopause for whatever it is that they're feeling and we're like no it's really hard to sort out is this just aging or is this just like now you've been married for 30 years or like is this that you're about to retire like there are just so many other fluctuations that happen around this time period and I think it's worth definitely allowing that space because people are very very emotional about even if they, even if they didn't want to have kids or didn't want to have any more kids you're you're emotional I think about the finality of it mm-hmm. or at least what society thinks about the finality of it and we don't and like we it's funny because we sort of celebrate the finality of like childhood with puberty and like yeah. becoming an adult and we like you know celebrate the finality of being someone who is not responsible for another person's life with like pregnancy what if there was like a graduation what if you could like graduate from menstruation i feel like there should be much more of a party like there should be a menopause party box someone work on that (gasps) nobody work on that we we should make that (laughs) damn it okay Copyright, no, copyright, copyright. <laughs> nobody work. On nobody that. work on that. Okay, no, celebrate. Totally. Oh, fine, celebrate it and make a big box or something. And give candy and I don't know what. Okay, average age of menopause in the U.S. is fifty-one. That's the age of the final menstrual period again, and this means that women as early as their forties and as late as their seventies may experience some of those symptoms. Um, that time period, the forties to the seventies. I mean, just as long as it happens before you stop bleeding, is called that the perimenopause. If it happens before age forty, then it's technically considered early menopause. But really, if someone goes through menopause at age forty, forty-one, that's technically considered within a normal range, which is kind of mind blowing to me as someone who's like in her mid to late thirties. Wow, totally. And I think that's why there's so much that is clouded over about menopause that people think of it as something that only happens to really old women or only happens, you know, in at, for one year or something. There yeah. are just so many misconceptions about menopause. Um, okay. So, and it's frustrating to me. And part of why there are so many misconceptions is that there is not a ton of research on menopause still. So it's incredibly frustrating to me as a woman, a doctor, and a researcher that we don't know more about menopause as something that all women go through. A lot of this has to do with us not valuing it in, in society. So I looked at the database of all clinical trials that are ongoing right now, and there are more trials on menopause than ever before. Oh, great. And there are still only about 1,000 trials looking at menopause compared to about 18,000 looking at heart disease and 500 looking at erectile dysfunction. Stop it. Yeah, so I think that it's, while despite the fact that everyone goes through menopause, we still know so little about it. Okay, but here's what we do know. Some women don't have any symptoms at all during the perimenopause, but many women do. The most common problems that people come to see us for are, number one, I would say hot flashes, which are the sensations of feeling warm, all of a sudden, and even sweating. We still don't really have great scientific explanations for why hot flashes even happen or why some women experience them and others don't. We do know that when we look at estrogen hormone levels throughout the menopause, they are fluctuating. Sometimes they're super high and sometimes they're super low and that these fluctuations, not necessarily the higher low moments, 
are what seem to be associated with the increase in the frequency of hot flashes. And this is sort of why measuring your hormone levels is not super helpful. So there is one hormone level that we measure to sort of help define whether or not you're in menopause. And that hormone level is called follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. And that is once it's above a certain level in a particular part of the cycle, we say you're probably in menopause. Um, But other than that, there's no real evidence that the knowing the actual level of FSH or your other hormones is helpful in figuring out what treatment would be helpful for hot flashes or what treatment would be helpful in other things. And so there's this weird demand that people have for measuring their hormone levels that I think comes from wanting to understand more of what's happening with their body and having that, like that's the focus of how they get their answer instead of knowing that there's actually not a lot of scientific evidence that knowing your hormone level exact number is helpful. Right. I think it's easy because you want a quick fix, but it's mostly a clinical thing. You've stopped bleeding. It's probably menopause. You've, you know, you're at the right age. Right. There's um, not a test like that. Right. So the treatment that ends up helping most people when they're experiencing hot flashes is an estrogen therapy, either a patch or a pill or a vaginal ring that gives you a constant higher level or steady state of estrogen. And the goal there is really to reduce those fluctuations or dips by creating that that baseline or that steady state. Caveat here, if you still have your uterus, if you haven't had a hysterectomy, you also need to be on some kind of progesterone to protect your uterus from being at a higher risk of having uterine cancer. But if you've already had a hysterectomy, you can just have estrogen alone. Yep. And there are some risks to hormone therapy or estrogen therapy. And we really don't say hormone replacement therapy anymore to kind of get outside of this idea that you are missing the estrogen and we're giving you back the estrogen you're missing. That's really not what we're doing, which is why we don't calculate doses that way. Um, What we do know is we, based on one of the major studies um, about hormone therapy and estrogen therapy in the menopause, the Women's Health Initiative, we know that estrogen therapy in menopause increases the risk of stroke. And that is has been shown in a very, very large study called the Women's Health Initiative. But a reanalysis of that data showed that the stroke risk was mainly in women who were much older, so in their 60s for the most part. So not that that's old, but that that's old for thinking about menopause and initiating hormone therapy, that they were farther from their final menstrual period and taking hormone therapy or estrogen therapy for a long time. And what the study didn't really look at was women who started estrogen therapy right at the time when they went through menopause and only took it for a short period of time, which is actually how we tend to prescribe estrogen therapy in real life. When I, yeah, so that's interesting. When I talk about the women's health initiative study to people and, um, You'd be surprised like how many people come into the office knowing a little bit about it because, uh, you know, it obviously got a lot of media attention back when they were, this study was coming out. There's a couple of them. Um, But the three things that I always point out to people are that one, it was not studied in people who were going through the menopause. They were, the study was done in women who are much older, like Erica's saying. So even if you like take the results of that study, we don't really know if you can completely extrapolate them to a group of younger women, like women who are 50, 51, because a lot of these women, like you're saying, are much older in their 60s and 70s. Um, the second thing that I like to point out is that it wasn't used to study hormone replacement for menopause even. They were actually looking at different things, like does it cause, like you're saying, cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease and other outcomes. They weren't actually looking at can we use this to treat menopause. That kind of plays into... Um, it kind of plays into the the age of the women they were studying, but the indication is off too. They yeah. weren't studying it to try to help with hormones for menopause. And the third thing is that, yes, there are risks, 
Let's put it into context. There's risks really for everything we do in medicine. And when you actually look at the numbers for these studies, yes, it increased breast cancer risk. Yes, it increased um, cardiovascular risks or like blood clots, stroke, heart attack. But they only increase it for like for people who don't have a, a prior history of any of these things by 0.08% per year. So even if you have someone on it for like 15 years, you're still really only increasing the risk of either of those things by like 1.5% when you do the math. So it's still very, very low. That being said, it needs to be like a conversation with people they need to know and not have these risk factors. Um, but, but overall, it, yep. it's, you know, it's sort of like a drop in the bucket. Especially when we think of other things that also increase the risk of stroke and uh, cardiovascular disease and blood clots that we also should talk to people about all the time, like obesity, Obesity, like sedentary lifestyles. High-fat diets. Yeah. yeah. All those things also significantly increase the risk of all those things. And those people are much less likely to want to change their diet than they are to think about yeah. not treating so their So put it all in context. Right. But ACOG, because we always want to, you know, come down to our gold standard here too. ACOG will always recommend, at least when they're talking to providers about how to prescribe these things, that we give the smallest dose possible and for the shortest amount of time. So that is why if yep. you're going through this yourself, you're probably going to have a provider who's, you know, checking in with you and, and seeing if you want to decrease your dose or if you're ready to stop it because, you know, there there is an increase. And one of the things I just wanted to mention because we're talking about all the scary things about hormone therapy are some of the benefits. So oh, yeah. like besides just treating hot flashes, which it has been shown to be more beneficial than any other treatment for the relief of hot flashes and night sweats. But it also protects against some of the bone loss that occurs mm-hmm. in early menopause and helps prevent hip and spine fractures. And it's also in these large studies, like the Women's Health Initiative, seems to reduce the risk of colon cancer. So all those things are also important to think about in sort of the risk-benefit analysis of starting hormone therapy. And just wellness, like quality of life, I don't Mm -hmm. think can be stressed enough. When you, I've seen so many people who come in and they're like, I, I need my hormones. I don't know what I'm going to do without them. And we have a conversation and we talk about risk and that's cool. We have a shared decision-making, um, conversation. But if someone is really saying, Hey, look, I'm like severely depressed. I'm not myself. I can't live this life the way I feel off of my hormones. Well, that deserves credence, you know? Yep. Totally. And I think that this is an area that we're seeing a lot more exciting literature in, but there is a lot that of questions around what is the effect of hormone therapy about around cognition and around like, because that's what we hear from women subjectively. We hear that women feel like being on their hormone therapy, they have a clearer head. They are feel less all over the place. And some of those symptoms that can be really disturbing about menopause are better with the hormone therapy that hasn't been fleshed out fully in research at this point. But part of that is we, our measurements of cognition are not like are you getting stuff done in your life as easily as you would like to? They're much more like, can you complete this memory task? Like a Sudoku? Way? Yeah, Sudoku. But <laughs> but increasingly we're finding out, have, having more data about that. But I don't think we can say anything definitive at this point. But well, it, but it may like help. never do Sudoku. Like I've never been able to do Sudoku, but okay. So that would be like a really bad cognitive measurement for you, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> do it. I don't yeah. know how to do it, but okay. There are other medicines. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about those that can ca- that can also be used for treatment of hot flashes for someone who doesn't want to use hormone therapy? Yeah. So, um, like you were saying, the the most effective thing, hands down, for hot flashes at least, is systemic estrogen, plus or minus a progestin. For vaginal dryness, we know that you can just use like a, a local estrogen, so like an estrogen cream or a different kind of vaginal estrogen ring. But sometimes people can't have hormones or they really just don't want to take 
hormones. Um, in those situations, the, the next best thing is an SSRI, or that's the fancy word for an antidepressant, essentially. Um, and some of these, actually, some of these SSRIs have been studied and found to be very beneficial for the treatment of hot flashes. There's also uh, gabapentin, which is, I know that sounds crazy, but it's an anti-seizure medication technically, but it's often used for like a lot of chronic pain. And that can be helpful also with hot flashes, as can this blood pressure medication called clonidine. These are all prescription drugs, of course, so you would need to talk with your provider about what's best for you. And then there are some of the more what we would call alternative therapies that have also been studied. Um, specifically, uh, soy, black cohosh have, have both been studied in trials looking at the relief of menopausal symptoms. And both have been shown in some trials to be helpful and some trials to be not helpful. And so it's hard. And because these are not regulated by the FDA, it's really hard to figure out things like dosing effects. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with like Chinese herbal remedies. I remember my mom coming home in the middle of like with with menopause hot flashes and she had like gone I don't even know where she went because I'm not Chinese to get Chinese herbs and I was like mom what is in this bag and she was like I don't know and I was like are you serious right now you're taking this like bag full of herbs none of which you have any idea what it is yeah but I mean she's desperate you know totally and not my, to say that you have, you have to be desperate to do herbs but like you and I are very like medicine minded and like I need to know everything that's in it if I'm consuming it well I guess that's true but then I also think like my mom I think of her in that same mindset and I think of like time periods in my life when I felt less in control of my health like yeah. postpartum and being like maybe people are just thinking about things outside of the box yeah. because there's not a lot of information and I mean, not a lot of I did herbs postpartum, right? Like fenugreek, totally. Yeah, totally. yeah. even yeah. though it's not regulated. So I think yeah. that there, those are some of the things that people have looked into and that like from the beginning of time, women and midwifery lore has used those things for yeah. the treatment of menopause. And we, I hope we get more studies about it. Um, and then another thing that people talk about is compounding bioidentical yeah. what hormones. What is that? Because I feel like that's, you see that in like, the news, you see it in Sex in the City. What is that? That is expensive hormones. Really? That's what, bio, <laughs> that's, that's what bioidentical hormones are. It turns out that there are several types of estrogen available that in, in the body and in the world. There's estradiol, ethanol estradiol. There's estrone. There are different types of slightly different molecules of estrogen. And same thing with progesterone. There are progestins are the synthetic versions. And then progesterone is the natural natural version. So what bioidentical hormones are come from plant sources instead of what our actual hormones come from is often like the original Provera came from horse urine. Yeah. Like pregnant horses. And so... I love that story, by the way. I know, right? So... These are plant-based, bioidentical, meaning natural, but that's what all of hormones are from. So I think, and compounding pharmacies tend to be much more expensive, but can get different levels. I have not seen any research that has shown that that is more effective. And I think same thing, they're not FDA regulated. The dosing is really suspect that unless you have someone who really talks, really knows about that and can explain the dosing well, I would be suspect of that. And the ACOG doesn't endorse any... um, bioidentical compounded hormones. And then there's the vagina. Vagina, vagina, vagina. So without as much estrogen, so when estrogen decreases in menopause, the cells of the vagina that normally receive a lot of estrogen have uh, are, get a little bit less like 
puffy or pillowy for a bet, lack of a better way to describe that. And the reason for that is the estrogen helps them fill up with fluid and with, um, with steroid hormones. And that makes them more like pillowy. And as there's less estrogen, the vagina doesn't have that same kind of like pillowy feel. Um, that is not bad in of itself and doesn't necessarily decrease sensation in and of itself. But what it does do is increase the risk of small abrasions and increase the risk of UTIs or urinary tract infections, because there's just less sort of softness and elasticity to those tissues. Yeah. I mean, it's just like with all aging, all skin is going to become a little bit more paper-like, less fluffy, more prone to yeah cuts, scratches, whatever. And it happens to the vagina too, but you may notice it more because every time you walk, you can essentially feel it between your legs. Right. And same thing, obviously, every time you have sex. Okay. So can vaginal moisturizers and lubricants help with menopause symptoms? We oftentimes think about it in terms of sex, but what about menopause? Yes, they can. There, you, there is good sex to be had in the menopause. So there are lots of over-the-counter products that can be used to help improve sex during menopause. So there are vaginal moisturizers, which don't have hormones, but basically just increase the moisture overall in the vagina. People use those even not for sex, but just for like what Jen was talking about, like comfort while moving around. And then there are also lubricants that can be used every time you have sex. And we've, we touched a little bit on those, but there's oil-based lubricants tend to be a little bit more comfortable during menopause. However, they cannot be used with condoms and or some sex toys. So think about that when you're deciding on your lubricant. And there are other important health issues beyond the vagina to consider in menopause. Some of the other changes that happen as estrogen levels decrease and the body ages are decreases in bone density. So this is why we recommend that all women have their first bone scan at age 65 if they haven't had one sooner because of risk factors to look for osteoporosis. And in addition to that, your cardiovascular health is important too. So um, interestingly, if we do a hysterectomy on someone after they've gone through menopause, like say age 51, 52, we will now leave their ovaries behind unless they've got a really high risk factor of having ovarian cancer or you know ovarian cysts that keep coming back or some other reason to take them out because even though the ovaries have shut down essentially or you know quote unquote there's still some protection uh, for the heart um, at least up until age 65 is what newer research is showing. So what can you do to stay healthy after menopause, just like lifestyle changes? Well, I think like the same things that we say to everyone for staying healthy throughout your life, right? Like eat a balanced diet, be sure to include enough calcium and vitamin D, which helps with maintaining strong bones. Regular exercise becomes even more important as we think about osteoporosis and bone health, especially weight-bearing exercise like walking can help keep bones strong. Um, strength training can help your muscles and bones that help resist against weight. Um, and then routine healthcare, making sure you're having regular visits to your healthcare professional and your gynecologist. Cause I think sometimes people think like they're done with pap smears. They don't have to see us anymore. And actually there are so many still things that are important about making sure your reproductive life is fulfilling and that you're still getting the screening that you need. As we, I think as a society start to embrace mental health concerns more too, this is a time like you were mentioning before, that's just prone to a lot of different changes in life. Maybe if you have children, maybe they're leaving the house, maybe your marriage is coming to a different phase, maybe you're retiring. There's a lot of life changes happening at this time. And now is the time to really check in with someone and make sure that you have someone you can talk to about mental health concerns if you have them, especially as your hormone levels start to change. And just like processing those changes, like again, think back to puberty and like how helpful it would have been if you had had the agency and like 
thoughts that you have now mm-hmm. to pursue a therapist or a therapeutic relationship to really talk through like what are the ways in which my life is changing right now like what are the things that I like about my life what are the things I want to pursue as this change happens and I think that's what I really want menopause the conversation about menopause to go into yeah. is this like this is a time point like any birthday to kind of like pause reflect take stock of your body and your health and decide like where am I where have I been and where do I want to go in this next phase of life where like I bet you there's something like historically, culturally, I don't know if you guys, if anyone listening has any stories or menopause cultural traditions, yeah, traditions, tidbits of his, anything, you know, about like people celebrating the menopause. Oh my gosh, please email them, send need, them over. We need like a hashtag, like menopause celebration. No, something clever. Okay. Come know. on. Tell us you your clever. You can think of a better, tell us your clever your ones, hashtag too. but we need something better than the menopause. So yeah, give anyway. us your new terminology. All right. And in the meantime, vagina, 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 vagina. If you've liked this episode of The V Word, please visit us at www.vwordpod.com and listen, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at vwordpod. This podcast was written and produced by the V Word team. Thanks for listening.